Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 2019 Smith Lecture. Full house, as indeed it should be, for David Starkey. Thank you so much for coming. Um, the Smith Lecture is something we started uh, three years ago, two years ago, sorry. Our first speaker was Douglas Murray, who you might know from the book The Strange Death of Europe. And our second speaker last year was Nigel Farage, who talked about uh, social media and free speech. And I'm delighted and honoured, actually, that this week, uh, this year, we have, I think, the best-known historian in Britain, Dr. David Starkey, who's going to talk to us about Brexit and the constitutional crisis. Um, I'd like to start before, just in case some of you are unfamiliar, but the New Culture Forum started in 2006. And uh, I believed, and the people with me believed, that in that sort of rather well-known phrase now, culture is upstream of politics. And I think that particularly over the past few years, with the Brexit referendum, and indeed with these rather terrible three years we've been through as well, um, we can say that this is something which is definitely uh, gaining purchase, if you like, in our intellectual life, that culture is incredibly important. So like all think tanks, we produce publications, we produce books, our reports have become influential, I'm pleased to say, and they have a lot of media attention. They are over there, some of them, on that stall there, indeed, as are our beautiful mugs, which you must buy if you like. Um, we're into merchandising now. Um, but the point is this, really, to be serious, is that um, I realized over the past couple of years that what think tanks do is, 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 most, you know, is, is incredibly important. But the problem is, is that we have a media now that is increasingly restricted, increasingly prescribed, and very, very narrow. So I think that what think tanks have to do, what we have to do, is to create our own forms of media. We have to create our own methods of communication to get our message out in an increasingly crowded field. So with that in mind, uh, this year at the New Culture Forum, we set up our own YouTube channel. We started a program called So What You're Saying Is. It's an interview program. I don't know whether any of you have seen any of it. But uh, I don't know whether you remember, but the reason we chose this title is because uh, Channel 4 News and Kathy Newman did an interview with Jordan Peterson about two years ago, which was a bit of a benchmark in bias, actually. Uh, and it became a, a thing. It became a bit of a landmark. Um, she kept saying all the time, so what you're saying is that what she was doing was constantly, you know, re-evaluating his words, constantly saying, you know, basically putting words in his mouth. So we thought, this is the perfect uh, uh, title for a show. So we started that in January, and I've done 40 interviews since, and we've now got 3.2 million views, I'm pleased to say. And we've just started uh, another program uh, called Counterculture, which is going to be a discussion of the various issues, cultural issues that are basically shaping 
our thought and our society today. So this is terribly important. Um, I mention this because one of the first guests we had on was indeed David Starkey. And he gave us an hour of his time, and as a result, very quickly got a quarter of a million views. I'm very, very grateful to him for that. David Starkey is one of those uh, rare beasts. He's a public intellectual who also manages to speak to an extremely wide audience, whether it is on the Tudors, where these great documentaries on Elizabeth I or Henry VIII, or whether it's on more arcane constitutional matters. He manages to make them accessible, and he manages to tell our story to us. Uh, this is something which is more valuable than it's ever been because our schools have more or less given up on it. So I'm delighted that he's here today. He obviously has done much media too. He doesn't resile from being controversial. He's often on Question Time, The Moral Maze, numerous other programs. In fact, when I was looking up doing my research, as I of course should always do my research, um, I found out that his first television appearance was in 1977. So he's been with us a very long time, um, but he is here with us this evening. So when he's finished, there will be a time for questions, um, which we will have roving mics around the hall. But uh, without further ado, please, uh, can I ask you to welcome Dr. David Starkey to talk about Brexit. Peter, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Can I remind you where you are? You are in the Emmanuel Center, which means God is with us. We hope he is on Thursday. Uh, um, <laughs> last week, in anticipation of Thursday, I was at a very high-powered seminar uh, to contemplate uh, what the future election result might be, and it was very appropriately named, and certainly uh, I required extra medication, it was named High Anxiety, which seems to me to be entirely justified. And I had, uh, for perhaps some of the reasons that Peter has indicated, the last question was directed at me. And the question was, would you care to sketch what the political world will look like after the election? So I began by saying it would first be very helpful if somebody told me what the result of the election was. I would have then felt entirely competent to give that sketch. As we don't have that, as we are still in the lap of God or the lap of the gods or luck or whatever it is, we need to turn to something else. And as a professional historian, I do not believe that historians should be prophets. There is nothing worse than pretending that because you know about the past, you know about the future, uh, how even if you are as clever as Neil Ferguson, uh, it seems to me to be a perhaps especially if you're as clever as Neil Ferguson, it seems to me to be an error. On the other hand, history 
and you don't have to be a Marxist to believe this, history does have a tendency, if not simply to repeat, to produce rather similar patterns. And what I want to do this evening is to investigate what I think is the pattern, the model, that we're actually going through at the moment. When I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, um, as Peter has uh, ungallantly suggested, I am very ancient, um, uh, even before the 1970s, uh, when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, I detested 19th century history. I was taught it by Henry Pelling, uh, which is all about the rise of labor and the trade unions, and was as boring as you might think that was. And my other half was from some dreadful man who was a specialist in nonconformity. And I'm delighted to say, having been brought up as a Quaker, I had been inoculated against nonconformity from childhood. It was quite extraordinary, you know, in a Quaker meeting, People arise to speak as the spirit moves them. And even as an 11-year-old, I realized it was quite extraordinary that the spirit had always read a Guardian editorial. (laughs) Nevertheless, I have rediscovered my interest in the 19th century. Because it seems to me that what we're undergoing now, and this this is slick, it's crude, but I think there is a certain big pattern there. What we're undergoing now, as everybody tells us from every possible direction, are the consequences of globalization. The alleged widening, well, undoubtedly, the widening of the gap between rich and poor, the creation of a particular type of liberal elite, uh, creative destruction, uh, models of of universal governance, and, uh, and, and so on. It seems to me, if we go back to the early years of the 19th century, particularly in Britain, obviously as the cradle of the Industrial Revolution, if we go back to the 1830s and 1840s, we see industrialization having remarkably similar effects, as obviously it does. It is the first wave of globalization. And it seems to me that it destabilizes our politics on the one hand, and gives new political opportunities on the other. It's also, I think, worth putting in mind that the Industrial Revolution was only the second revolution to have hit in that stretch of time. Uh, 40, 50 years before it, there had been the French Revolution. And what we need to remember, and I'm sure I am, I am, I am as it were, teaching grandmothers to suck eggs and whatever uh, with this audience, the French Revolution is when the whole modern concept of politics begins. That's to say, the broad difference between the liberal reformer and the conservative. And with the key figure being uh, the man, uh, who, uh, Edmund Burke, having begun, of course, as a supporter of the previous revolution, the American Revolution, finds with the French Revolution um, an extraordinary, it's very appropriate, we're in a church, to read Burke's reflections on the French Revolution is to encounter, and I think for the only time in political thought, the genuine fire of prophecy. To read the reflections and the best portions of the reflections. It's not simply analytical, it's more than analytical, it is genuinely prophetic. Uh, He writes in 1790, he anticipates the terror, uh, he anticipates Napoleon, he anticipates the entire course of the revolution in a quite extraordinary fashion. 
But the thing that he most grasps, the thing that I think one takes away, and the thing that actually makes him the creator of conservatism is what the effect of disinhibited reason was. Remember, the French and the American revolutions share a common language of the late, en uh, the late Enlightenment. Uh, they talk uh, doctrines of universal rights and so on. But the two revolutions are absolutely fundamentally different in the reality. The linguistics may be similar. The actual effect is radically different. The Americans, one would probably regard as being a bad thing, uh, whilst they may prate about rights. Are we all familiar with the magnificent inequality? Are we all familiar with Johnson, Samuel Johnson's magnificent remark on the subject of the American Revolution that nobody prates more loudly in favour of liberty than a Yankee slave driver? So there is a wonderful, wonderful phrase. So there is the preservation of black slavery, the American Constitution, for all the fancy dress of senates and whatever, is a very, very lightly modified version of the British Constitution of the 18th century. You even have um, a House of Representatives which is managed by a speaker. Why is it managed by a speaker? Because the British... Parliament is managed by the House of Commons, is managed by a speaker. And what is strangest of all, if you're an American, uh, the administrative officer of the House of Representatives is the sergeant at arms. And they haven't the faintest blind idea what a sergeant at arms is, but it is, of course, simply because he manages the British Parliament. So you've got a revolution which, and you preserve English law and so on, you've got a revolution which studiously avoids following through its logic to its conclusion, which is why, I would argue, it is the only successful revolution. The French Revolution, on the other hand, the French being the French, and why they are, as I said, and we've got the critic here, why I said in my first article for the critic, most of the bad ideas in the world come from France. This is, <laughs> this is because they cannot stop following things through to a logical conclusion. Um, uh, and the result, of course, is, and quite seriously, is catastrophic. The French Revolution attempts to change everything on an allegedly rational model. You change time, you change dates, you change the calendar, you change, you try and rewrite the geography of France, you replace the historic provinces with notionally equal squares just imposed upon the map. You change terms of address, you change the relationship of human beings, and all in the name of reason. And yet it turns out, of course, to be the most monstrous, hideous parody of unreason and of violence. And this seems to me to be an absolutely fundamental point. We tend to be people who believe in reason. I come from a university which virtually invented the idea of empirical science, namely Cambridge. But, ladies and gentlemen, reason which is disinhibited, reason which is unhankered, Reason which is unchained from experience is a catastrophe. And this is the great model, this is the great challenge, which is offered by Edmund Burke, in which he 
puts against this disinhibited reason, what he calls in a magnificent and wonderful phrase, um, this new empire of reason and light, which turns into the most absolute tyranny. He erects against that the notion that actually we don't create our world. Our world creates us. We, as individuals, don't create society. Society creates us. And it's that essential conception which is the origin of conservatism. Now, the reason that I've given you this pre-lecture is very simple. It is that the man... Sorry, no. This is very French revolutionary, drinking out of an empty glass, right? Um, or dare I say, very Corbynesque. Yes. We shall have much experience of it if things go the wrong way. Um, uh, the, 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 the reason I'm, I'm giving this pre-lecture is because the man who learns, I think, most uh, from Burke is Benjamin Disraeli. And I think the figure who most completely shapes the politics of the 19th century, and I would argue is probably the best model for understanding and indeed working on the situation in which we find ourselves, is Disraeli. And Disraeli takes from Burke two fundamental senses. One, the historic rootedness of conservatism, uh, and particularly the rootedness of conservatism in the nation, about which he is absolutely clear. And the second, which is a deeply disturbing one, in view of the direction which conservatism has taken since Keith Joseph and Margaret Thatcher and Friedrich Hayek and whatever, that liberalism and conservatism are natural enemies. Deeply confusing and awkward and difficult. And arguing, of course, um, as, as, as he does, that the relationship again between capitalism and conservative is a very awkward and uneven and difficult one. So with that sort of introduction, look, what it seems to me Disraeli does, rising of course uh, in politics as this extraordinary young man in the 1830s, the least plausible figure to be a dominant influence in Victorian England. A flamboyant, probably fundamentally homosexual, converted Jew. Remember, his first speech in the House of Commons was laughed to scorn. And he still had the courage at the end of it to say, you mock me now, you will listen to me. And indeed they did. So this extraordinary left field figure. And what is he doing in the 1830s, apart from scrabbling into politics? He is part of the, that ludicrous movement of uh, young England, uh, which tried to recreate chivalry. You know, the, there's the wonderful book on it, the Eglinton Tournament, the wonderful book that's called The Knight and the Umbrella, which gives you the general sense uh, of the absurdity of the thing. He is involved in that, the attempted recreation of chivalry uh, in Victorian England. Uh, and he is also, of course, um, in another one of his novels, novels, he is responsible for the wonderful phrase, the phrase of the two nations, the, the two nations of rich and poor, this, this Pinkerty-like uh, creation of the gap between rich and poor, which is a, uh, fundamentally a product of industrialization, and uh, in which he says, you know, the two nations have as little to do with each other as though they were in different zones, that's climatic zones, or different continents, that sense. And Disraeli then, I think, 
is essentially the man who asks the question, what can the social basis of conservatism be? What is its nature? And of course, it's worth again uh, recapping a little of the political detail. What goes on uh, in the 1830s, of course, uh, you've got this extremely rapid multiplication of the British economy, the ascendant supremacy of freedom of trade. Uh, you have, as I said, uh, when, 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 when I was just, just talking about it quickly to begin with, uh, a notable increase of, the, of a wealth divide, the creation of a mercantile and commercial elite, which is fundamentally liberal which is wedded to notions of non-national values, which, in other words, a formulation that we've become familiar with, again, because of the work of David Goodhart, is archetypically anywhere. The whole fundamental of capitalism and of liberalism is it is fundamentally anywhere. Generalized rules, uh, an absence of national frontiers, a willingness to trade anything with anybody, combined, of course, with those inheritances of the universalism of the 18th century, the belief in, uh, in, in doctrines of the absolute equality of all mankind, uh, the fact that you owe a duty not simply to your national group but to the whole of humanity, all of this generalizing stuff. Uh, and it's the, these changes, of course, also go along uh, with, with, uh, uh, with, with gigantic changes in industry uh, that lead to the multiplication of laboring masses, the transformation and decline, just like now, creative destruction, transformation and decline of old industries and the rise of new ones, different areas of the country retreating from economic activity, others booming and all the rest of it. Um, and what it seems to me is Disraeli looks at this and begins to sketch in the 1830s in a way which he is only able to fulfill as the century unfolds. For me, the key analysis of where we are now. As I said, he recognizes that the enemy is liberalism. That liberalism destroys, fragments, shatters tradition, is indifferent if not contemptuous of history. It is also quite a narrow creed of quite a narrow social group. He then argues that there is a natural affinity between whatever the Conservative Party was. It didn't quite exist at this point, but never mind. He's, he's, he's a novelist. He's, a, he's, he's, a, he's an inventor, um, an inventor of words and ideas, and reality catches up with him. There's a, he sees a natural affinity between the Conservative Party, by that he means a section of the political elite of the landed aristocracy and so on, he sees a natural affinity between them and what he calls the people, the working mass. Now, this is vaguely Hegelian, and in some ways it's slightly preposterous. What is he actually, and Hegel is very influenced by all of this sort of stuff too. Hegel, again, derives very, very heavily from Burke. Hegel's basic conceptions about the state are Burke translated into bad German, um, and it's very bad German, uh, utterly unreadable, but, 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 setting, but setting that aside, um, what is it that is the glue that holds these two things together. 
He sees it essentially as, the Israeli sees it essentially as patriotism, as a general sense of passion about your place of birth, about the country, about its traditions, which is often, dare one say it, a little bit belligerent, is often really, very, if you're English, and we are terribly good at fighting, um, especially the French, um, is, 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 is exceedingly belligerent and, and aggressive uh, and uh, is rather fond of a dust-up. I mean, uh, and I must say, I thought that the goings-on in Fishmonger's Hall were an absolutely magnificent illustration of the general biffiness of the British when they really get going. You know, it was very deeply impressive. Narwhal, you know, turning nar narwhals, fire extinguishers, and coat hangers into weapons was truly, was truly, setting aside the terror of the event, it was truly magnificent. And Disraeli sees this as the essential point. In other words, what he sees is that a conservative party has to be a social alliance between the top and the bottom, founded upon a passionate sense of national identity and nationhood. In other words, as against the liberal in the middle, which is fundamentally anywhere, they are the somewheres. They are those with that rooted sense, that sense of past, that sense of community, that sense of belonging. Now, it does seem to me, ladies and gentlemen, that this is a fundamental observation and one of obviously direct relevance to the present. But it goes on in the most interesting ways, doesn't it? Because from Disraeli, there is the descent of the notion of one-nation conservatism. Can we be absolutely clear, Disraeli is not responsible for the term. He talks about the two nations. The first usage of the term one nation conservatism is in the wildly different circumstances, which I will talk about in a moment, but we'll get the use and we'll get the man who does it there. It is Baldwin in the immediate, Stanley Baldwin in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. And he actually coins the phrase one nation Toryism, deliberately looking back towards Disraeli. But of course, at that point, ladies and gentlemen, the political landscape had shifted from two groups, liberal and conservative, into three. There had been the rise of the Labour Party. There had been, uh, uh, which of course was simply the political voice, to a very significant extent, it still is, uh, of the trade unions. Um, and there had been what George Dangerfield calls the strange death of liberal England uh, uh, after its triumph on either side of the First World War, um, its death with the, with the aftermath of the coupon election, and the rise of the Labour Party at the, extent to, at the expense of the Liberal Party. And this is the very different world, this tripartite world, uh, in which um, Stanley Baldwin is operating. And what Baldwin is doing in that world is something very different from Disraeli in the earlier world. What Baldwin is doing in that world is consciously trying to draw the revolutionary sting from the Labour Party. And he does it in a completely remarkable fashion, uh, in very close alliance uh, with, uh, uh, Peter was kind enough to refer to some of my work on monarchy. What we forget in the beginning of the 20th century uh, in the monarchy of George V was that we had a politically highly active monarchy. 
which is radically different from the supine monarchy of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, that the monarchy of George V is one which, first of all, allies itself with Baldwin in deliberately taking the Labour Party as the equivalent of the grit in the oyster and then putting as much mother of pearl over it as it could. And there are the wonderful scenes in which the Labour government of 1924, the minority Labour government of Ramsay MacDonald, uh, and you have the posters there in, in, in Tufton Street where we were now, the government uh, in 1924 is welcomed into, into Buckingham Palace with truly extraordinary scenes. Um, in which you get the miners, in those days, who were actual miners in the Labour cabinet. Can you actually believe it? And the only one who wouldn't turn up at Buckingham Palace, of course, is the middle-class uh, 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 Sidney Webb. And there's a famous exchange between J.H. Thomas and King George V, who asks why on earth wasn't uh, Mr. Webb there, to which J.H. Thomas replies, well, sir, in that household, it's Beatrix what wears the breeches. Because, of course, in those days, you had to wear court dress with silk breeches. And you can imagine the magnificent figure which these miners, you know, sort of in, you know, all muscled up with these wonderful tight breeches and their wives bursting out of white court dresses. Um, uh, and it, this was part of the adoption, uh, the, 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 the fusion of labor uh, into the heart of government in this notion of one nationism. The honor system, remember, completely transformed in 1917, even has an order of chivalry specifically for trade unionists and Labour MPs. The Companion of Honour is deliberately invented by Curzon for that purpose, on the grounds that being committed socialists, they wouldn't want vulgar trinkets like knighthoods and peerages. How little did they know what the truth would be? And now, of course, the Companionship of Honour is simply a kind of proximate acessit to the order of merit, you know, for, for not quite first-rank academics and that. I mean, you know, people like Roy Strong or whatever get that, get, 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 get that kind of thing. Um, so you get this very different notion of one nation Toryism, which is social harmony, which is not actually a political position. It is rather setting up a notion that we now have politics rather like a cricket team in which every so often it's only fair that the other side have an innings. You know. And then in the aftermath of the Second World War, the term One Nation Toryism is revived in the aftermath of the catastrophic defeat of the Tory party uh, in 1945. Um, and um, the, with, with, the one nation, with the One Nation Essay Club, uh, which uh, produces many of those with, 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 with extraordinary people uh, um, uh, like, like he, uh, like, can you imagine, both, both, both Heath uh, and Powell are in the same group. God knows what was going on there, uh, as well as Gilmore and all the rest of it. Um, but what is really striking, ladies and gentlemen, is how completely the term, as it is passed into the present, completely reverses both what Baldwin did and what um, One Nation Toryism and what Disraeli did. And if you look at the final sort of manifestations of One Nation Toryism and the people who claim to belong to it, the Dominic Greaves and all the rest of, it, of this world, it's supposed to be liberal conservatism. It is a vile antithesis. Uh, which is why, of course, it never worked, and I would suggest its combina peculiar combination of both liberal and economic, um, uh, uh, sorry, both economic uh, and social liberalism is one of unique unpopularity 
which is why they will crash, one hopes, uh, to oblivion uh, in, in, in the forthcoming election. So that's the, this odd term, one nation. What I think what I'm wanting to restore then is the original Disraelian idea that one nation isn't so much about being nice to the working class or economic reform, though there's a little bit of that, you know, uh, uh, Disraeli in the government in the 1870s, sanitas, sanitas, omnia sanitas, and all the rest of it, um, health, health, all is health. There's a little bit of that. What above all it is, it is the use of patriotism. It is the use of empire. It is the use of nationhood and nationalism and a blaring assertion of these things. And ladies and gentlemen, I would suggest that Boris would be quite extraordinarily good at doing this if only he would let himself go. So we've got then to derive from this period of the 19th century this notion of the genuine meaning of one nation conservatism, both in terms of its width of social different groups within it, and what the cement between those groups is. And again, it seems to me we've spent far too much time uh, worrying about the intricacies of policy, and particularly social policy. Yes, it's important. Yes, financial calculations are important. But isn't the whole Brexit debate an absolute standing illustration of the fact that values are central? And the reason that Remain lost so catastrophically was for the simple reason that Cameron franchised his brain to George Osborne. And George Osborne had only been to St. Paul's, and all he could do was count. And you had, and you had, you had this debate, which was fundamentally a debate about values which was then replied to simply in terms of cash. So what we've seen over the last two and a half years is debates, two sides of the debate, crossing like ships in the night. They, they are the perfect poles of Oscar Wilde's remark of those who know, you know the price of everything, the remainder, and the value of nothing. And it seems to me to, 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 to illustrate the point perfectly. Whereas Disraeli is supremely the politician who understands value, who understands the language of values and, uh, as I said, the language of, of integration, of being in it together, uh, and, and, and so on. And what is, again, remarkable, it seems to me, at the moment, is if you read the Times today, which I take for granted everybody in the room did, you will see there's a very remarkable article by Ruth Davidson pushing forward essentially this point and saying that you have, on the one hand, an argument about nationhood in the, in the, in the assertion of, 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 of independence and self-government um, uh, in, in, as it were, the British general, the English side of the general election, and in Scotland, the wish to remain part of this, this, this nation because of union. Uh, and the, the, the two debates, she, she brings them together beautifully, and I think she gives a common ground between them, which again, it would have seemed to have, me, to have been extraordinarily easy to do, to connect the get Brexit done on the one hand, with a much broader idea of a reassertion of nationhood and being in it together, because what is it about? If it's not that, why do it? Why bother? Uh, in other words, to have a new politics of somewhere. Um, the other extraordinary uh, aspect of Disraeli that uh, is worth thinking about, and this is where we get to the point of constitution, 
Disraeli is the man, I think, who more than anybody else understands actually how parliamentary government works and plays a fundamental part in both its deconstruction and its reconstruction. As I'm sure we're all aware, the uh, politics of the Tory party first begins to emerge under Sir Robert Peel, uh, with Sir Robert Peel's famous Tamworth Manifesto, uh, which addresses the fundamental question, and it seems to me to be one that we still need to debate. If I'm saying that there's an opposition between conservatism and liberalism, we then have to ask the question, most of us here, I imagine, would put ourselves on the conservative side of the political spectrum, how do we relate to the notion of reform? How do we relate to the notion of change? How is it to be handled? Is there a particular logical way of looking at it? Is there a difference between liberal reform and conservative reform? And I would argue that that's exactly what Disraeli works out and what Peel fails to do. In the Tamworth Manifesto, the central section of it is Peel saying, I accept the Reform Act of 1832, which created this new, fundamentally urban liberal electorate, which was profoundly hostile to the Conservative Party, and which is why Disraeli only holds office seriously the very, very end of his career uh, in, the, in the 1870s. It creates a world which is deeply hostile to conservatism. Um, uh, Peel says, okay, I accept uh, I accept uh, uh, the Reform Act, but we can't have continuous reform because otherwise, and he uses a phrase which is very reminiscent of the charges uh, which, uh, uh, which Burke made against the French Revolution, he uses a phrase that we'll, we will be in a perpetual turmoil. If we have constant reform, we will be in a state of permanent turmoil and distress, and there will be no foundation, which is absolutely true. But it then turned out, of course, that his combination of supremely high intelligence, uh, remember, uh, 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 Peel is the top in both mathematics and greats in his year at Oxford. Can you imagine if we'd prime ministers like that? He's a man of dazzling intelligence and with, of course, the corresponding arrogance, which I couldn't possibly comment on, that, uh, that, that goes with, with dazzling brilliance. And he turns out to be a natural reformer and he all, things we all associate, petty post and, 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 and the police force and quite extraordinary series of transformations, all culminating in the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1846, the triumph of principled free trade and the, the triumph of liberal opinion, uh, and Disraeli uh, splits the Tory party on those grounds. And can I gently point out, ladies and gentlemen, I've been talking all the time about how far this anticipates. This is exactly the split that's taken place in the Tory party now. It is precisely the split on precisely that issue. The Peelites are the equivalent of Grieve and all the rest of them. That's what they are. Um, and uh, and, and it, it's demonstrated by what happens to them. Uh, the supporters of Peel go on and they become the intellectual basis of the new Liberal Party. And Disraeli is then left with the rump of the Tory party having to come up with something different and create something different. And um, he is profoundly aware that the world they move into after this split of the Tory party and fragmentation of, of, of politics in the Commons is one which is profoundly unsympathetic to parliamentary government. 
If you actually look uh, in the middle years of the 19th century, there are a series of short-lived governments. Uh, there are, uh, there's a tendency of, uh, of, 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 of a government to have to cabal a group of MPs together on the floor of the House. In other words, there is something remarkably similar to the situation that we found ourselves in for the last two and a half years. What does Disraeli say? Disraeli says, party, party, party. The only way uh, parliamentary government can work is by party. And there's no point, he says, you know, effectively, there is no point in inducing principle. There is no point in being like uh, Peel and saying, you know, what I will do is bend a party to my will to fulfill a matter of general principle. That is not, that will not work. That is, which, again, is precisely what David Cameron tried to do. Um, uh, uh, you cannot do that. You have to rule with party. And what we then see in the course of Disraeli's career is circumstances Time, he's a great believer in time, moving in his direction. And as I'm watching time move on on my watch, also I will have to abbreviate a little of the political history of the uh, 19th century, wonderful though it is. By the time you've got to the 1860s, Disraeli realizes that there's a possibility of what he calls stealing the clothes of the Whigs. And what he does is he broadens the franchise away from the prosperous, liberal, educated elite in the towns, and he gives it to the ordinary working man, who, and again, this is very important, is a householder. He, like Thatcher, understood what he talks about, not homes or council houses, he talks about dwellings. He understood that other sense of somewhere, that sense of even if you don't own it, most of them didn't, but you actually have got secure rental, you're there, you are somewhere, you're in that place, you belong, you are part of that community. And what Disraeli does with 1867 is to create the basis of, as it were, to translate from that theory of the 1830s, the relationship between the upper classes and the working classes, he turns it into a genuine electoral coalition. And if what is supposed to be happening in this election with the collapse of the Red Wall in the North and the Midlands happens, and at the same time the Tories' loss of significant numbers of seats around London, we will have a neo-Disraelian Conservative Party. That's exactly what will, Boris will find himself in the shoes of Disraeli and therefore having to deploy, I would argue, the same techniques and all the rest of it uh, as Disraeli did. But what that, uh, that, that triumph of quasi-democracy did, and it's really important we understand this, what the triumph of, uh, in, the 18th, in 1867 and between there into the early uh, 1870s, um, Disraeli uh, cemented his position, of course, uh, in his government in the 1870s by a passionate unleashing of the notion of empire. Uh, there'd obviously been a notion of empire before it, but he's really the first to deploy the word consciously. Of course, the creation of Victoria as Empress of India, but the general sense of, let's be frank, jingoism. This is why Gladstone viewed Disraeli with the infinite contempt that he did, because Disraeli understands 
values, I think, uh, in a way which, which, which Gladstone doesn't. Uh, Gladstone is, is, of course, uh, he, he, he will trot out liberal pieties, but the things that touch people's souls seems to me to be just what Disraeli was brilliant about. But alongside all that soul-touching and creation of new electoral coalitions, what we have to understand, ladies and gentlemen, is that on the back of what Disraeli did in an equal hardening in the shape of the Liberal Party, you create modern democratic party politics. And it's really important that we understand what they were. To begin with, you get the fixidity of parties. You get all MPs standing directly as the candidate of one party or another. You get clear party manifestos, and in the House, you get rigorous whipping. Now, many of us tend to regard that as a bad thing. And if you want a sense of what this new politics was like, can I suggest you look at the works of Gilbert and Sullivan? They're all produced at this point. Iolanthe, particularly the magnificent song of Private Willis, a lot of dull MPs in close proximity, all thinking for themselves is what no man can stand with equanimity. A little, every boy and every gal that's born into the world alive is either a little liberal or else a little conservative. This is the new world of party politics um, uh, and that they can't think for themselves, they vote just as their parties tell them to. This is the new world. And ladies and gentlemen, the key thing to understand about this new world is it is the only way in which a parliament can be made answerable to the electorate. Every chatter about the independence of MPs and MPs as representatives is saying your constituents don't matter. You can make up your mind on the key issues. And in other words, exactly the Dominic Grieve, the, the, the Burko position of the last two and a half years. And at the same time that the cementation of political parties was taking place was also something else that we heard a lot about, but I think very few people un actually understood, the creation of Erskine May the creation of the handbook of parliamentary procedure. Uh, Erskine May is the clerk, well, he's the junior clerk of the parliaments. The clerk of the parliaments is the clerk of the lords. He was the junior clerk of the parliaments. He was the clerk of the commons in the 1870s and 1880s. And in this period, you develop the other side uh, that, as it were, cements government control of parliament, which is parliament, the, the government's control of parliamentary procedure through Erskine May, the, the precedence of government business. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to commit heresy for many people. That is the only way a parliament can work. A parliamentary government can only work with two parties. It cannot work with proportional representation. All over Europe now, we are seeing this phenomenon. Look at the number of elections in Spain. Look at the number of elections that we're going through here. Parliamentary government depends, as Disraeli with this brilliant perception uh, said, it depends upon party. And what, of course, the Brexit crisis, which undermined the ideological basis of our traditional parties in the same way that the, that the, global, global, the crisis of globalism un undermined the basis of their electoral coalitions, it suddenly stripped the veil of a hundred years and dissolved the connection between representative democracy 
and um, parliamentary sorry, uh, b between direct democracy, uh, uh, the, the, the sovereignty of the electorate, and the sovereignty of parliament. Because remember, ladies and gentlemen, there is a completely unfulfilled question. What does parliamentary sovereignty mean? Is the actual parliament simply a bunch of people who get up one morning and decide they will vote on something? Will that bind everybody? And we, have, we found ourselves facing that reductio ad absurdum. It's impossible uh, and it can't be justified. And of course, you got alongside that all sorts of fantasticated nonsense, which has become uh, legal doctrine, like the notion of separation of powers, which is utterly antithetical to the British Constitution. There has never been a separation of powers in Britain. And my, the, you've all got the critic there. The first article that I wrote for that demonstrated where Montesquieu got this preposterous notion from. It's, of course, a bad idea. It's French. But where does he get it from? Well, he spends two years in England, um, and he doesn't speak English. And he moves in an entirely French-speaking circle, and he gets the idea from a couple of preposterous pamphlets um, by uh, that, that, that uh, strange marginal figure, Bolingbroke. The idea of a separation of powers never had any existence in reality in England. The whole... What, 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 what the... What, what the, the, the great Horace Walpole did, say, what, 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 what the great Robert Walpole did, Horace Walpole did lots of other things that were much more amusing, but what, what the great Robert Walpole did was to manage Parliament, was to use the power of the Crown to manage Parliament. That is why the British Parliament survives. Most Parliaments disappear because they, are fundament, they fundamentally get in the way of good government, as we've actually seen abundantly in the last two and a half years. So it's Disraeli, with this astonishing perception of the great changes of the 19th century, that creates a modern parliamentary system that creates the necessary electoral coalition for conservatism, that supplies its necessary key ideological element, that understands the nature of the constitutional and procedural structures that underpin it. And what I would invite you all to do, ladies and gentlemen, is to read Disraeli and try to persuade your MP to do the same. Thank you very much.